welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, everyone, we are now rolling the tape, so please uh, uh, quietly be seated. Uh, oh, hi, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Thank you, Scott. Um, thank you all for, for uh, your enthusiasm and your, and your questions. I'd like to request that, um, uh, where possible, please uh, uh, save your questions for the end because Burns has some very in- interesting information uh, to get through, and, and, and we won't get to it if, if, if uh, we have undue interruptions. Um, thank you for your interest, and, and back to Burns. Thanks. Uh, I see a chair back there. That, uh, <laughs> we, we all have never been assigned the job of finding where that heathen is. You know. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, we're going to look at the genetics, the, uh, the biochemistry and, uh, uh, and uh, brain chemistry. Uh, genetics, uh, the adoption studies between 1935 and 1950 in three different Scandinavian countries. There were 8,000 adoptee studies that showed conclusively that if you had a primary relative that was an alcoholic or a drug addict, uh, the chances were four times greater that you too would be a, have an alcohol or drug problem. Uh, the Scandinavian countries at that time had a way of controlling all of their studies. Uh, there have been a lot of challenges as to the ethics of this study, but not to the actual information that was gotten from the study. Uh, they even they put identical twins in a known alcoholic home at one time, you know, those kind of things. So uh, you can ch- challenge the ethics, but we've known since 1950 that this had a strong genetic component. It was four times greater if you had a primary relative that had a compulsivity problem. Now, what we've learned about the brain chemistry makes this a lot more easily understood than just the idea of uh, nurture more the idea of nature, uh, because they found that those kids who developed alcohol problems, it, they developed that in families whether they did or did not have alcohol in the home. So it was fascinating to find this study. It was absolutely nature over nurture. The blood platelet, I'm not going to spend time on. The blood, just a second, the blood platelet, if I cut my hand and I bleed, there's a called a, a, a clotting a cascade, and there are multiple steps that go into that clotting one of those has to do with a cell called a blood platelet. And a blood platelet is very similar to a white cell, red cell, something of this nature. We know that the, what, we, what you'll see in a minute is the second messengers in that blood platelet are very identical to the second messengers in brain conductivity. And those are screwed up uh, from the use of alcohol in people who are genetically predisposed and in offspring of those alcoholics who have never been exposed to alcohol. It's not a 100% positive test. It is not commercially available, but it does give us more confirming evidence that there is a strong genetic component in this illness. 
uh, stimulus augmentation. When Getlow and Hennecke got together, they found the second thing, was, uh, the first thing was this parent of the same sex. The second thing was is that all alcoholics and drug addicts are stimulus augmenters. Now, you can extrapolate that into the compulsivity of whatever you've chosen that will satisfy your brain shortage. Uh, the example that I give, if I'm sitting at a red light and somebody honks at me when it turns green, I go through my entire life cycle in about five seconds. I'm serious. All the way from giving them the finger to getting out of the car and going back and asking them to get out so I can, one of us can get his ass whipped. And, 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 and I don't really care who does. Just somebody's got to get their ass whipped, you know. This is the dividing line between masculinity and wimpity. You know, it's those kind of things. Or if I, using the program, I drive off and don't do anything. If I'm not in fit spiritual condition, I spend the next three weeks feeling less than because I didn't at least give them the finger. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> now, and if I'm really in fit spiritual condition, by the time I get to the next red light, I'm praying for that ignorant son of a bitch. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. You know? But I'm praying for him. And pretty soon we both get better. I mean, I mean, we just both get better. And that, this is the whole deal about stimulus augmentation. One and one doesn't make two for us. One and one makes a hundred. And if we look at how this extrapolates into the affective mood problems, anxiety, depression, those are affective mood problems. They were the reason we drank to begin with. That's our medicine. Alcohol and drugs and compulsivity behavior is our medicine when that compulsive behavior satiates the brain shortage or the brain chemicals that are in shortage that we're looking at as a part of this presentation in the biopsychosocial model. These are the affective mood problems, the stimulus augmentation, the P3 and low amplitude alpha waves or brain waves which have to do with the inability to handle stress, loosely interpreted. They have to do with the inability to process stress. And there is a paucity of low amplitude alpha waves and P3 waves or P300 waves. Most of the neuroscientists know this. Most of the neurologists don't. They're not taught that. Uh, if we did many more brainwave studies on a lot of alcoholics and offspring of alcoholics, we would begin to see this consistent pattern. It would be a good diagnostic tool, not 100% accurate, but it's certainly accurate enough to help us explain why we dance when we ought to be laying down to take a nap. While we continue to cross boundaries that absolutely we know are so destructive, but the need to cross them are so great, we continue to do it for that momentary relief that is worth the price until we can't tolerate it anymore. And then whether to live a spiritual life or die an alcoholic or sexual compulsivity death is not an easy decision to make. That says and there is a solution. You think, you think that's, that's not an easy decision to make? Live it. It's not an easy decision to make. Yeah, I'm not going to stab myself, go out and do whatever I do to act out sexually right now. But if I don't deal with that right now, I'm going to do it somewhere down the pike. Yeah, I may act out here, whatever that acting out is. But that began six months before when I failed to establish and maintain my spiritual condition. The actual act is very small compared to the whole peculiar mental twist that leads up to that act. Failed to maintain a spiritual condition. What do I do to maintain my spiritual condition? 
deal with my self-centeredness, my dishonesty, my resentment, and my fear. Those are the seminal character defects as outlined in the fifth chapter and fourth step. As talked about again in the tenth step. As talked about again in the eleventh step. Those are the deal. I deal with those or I act out. And the whole twelve step process is dealing with those today. Dealing with those today. That's the whole deal. Uh, C. Robert Cloninger in uh, 1981 and still alive in extended studies began to put some meat on the bones of how we have different types of alcoholism. This is addressed in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous, but in addressing that in our textbook, most of that's archaic. It's not entirely accurate as we come to know it today, but its value is that he told us there would be different types of alcoholics. They would present in different ways. And Cloninger took this and ran with it in the early 80s. He has talked about two forms of genetic alcoholism, type 2 and type 1. Type uh, 1 is a later onset crescendo of drinking. This was the Jelnik idea of adult alcoholism, a later onset crescendo of drinking. Lose control of the quantity assumed, but attempt to maintain social control. If you'll notice down in the type 2, it says early onset, less than 25 years of age. The arbitrary age has been 25 years. And for the adult form, this holds pretty well. We will see this crescendo drinking usually begin after 25 years of age. Seven and a half year mean average of drinking uh, may occur up to 41 years of age or 40 or 45. Usually after 50, it doesn't occur. If you know in, in Jim's story, he didn't start drinking until he was 34. But in a matter of a short period of time, he's so violent that they put him in an asylum. Now, that would have been a thing called an inebriate asylum. At that time, the whole 80s, the whole eight, uh, 1800s were, uh, were an attack, uh, temperance movements with the Oxford, with the, uh, Washingtonians in 1840, and they failed for reasons that Wilson saw and did our traditions. Then you go right on up through the whole temperance movements, and that was what was shaking this country right after Prohibition, but we still had a whole group of the old terms that would have been called any bride to sex, any bride, they didn't say that then, but that's what it would be called today, any bride to sex, any bride to alcohol, any bride to cocaine, any bride to morphine, and they had asylums. They also had homes, but they had asylums. So that would have been what Jim would have been relegated to when they, he got out of the asylum, but he didn't start drinking until he was 34 and in a short period of time. So he's a type two. Now, I was a type 1 alcoholic. I was a type 2 drug addict. But I was a type 1 alcoholic. I was drinking two quarts of whiskey a night. It took me eight years to get there. Because I didn't start until 1969, however old that figures up, 40 years, whatever. But within eight years, I was drinking two quarts of whiskey a night, but I never drank in my office. You understand, I was trying to maintain societal control. You take the adolescent alcoholic or drug addict, mostly alcoholic. Drugs have made this an unlevel playing field, but we still see this principle close enough for it to be valuable and valid. Highly heritable, seen nine times more frequently in male offspring of male alcoholics, and I don't have any doubt this will extrapolate into sexual compulsivity. Four times more frequently in female offspring of female alcoholics. Uh, 
usually begins at less than 25 years of age. We can see it in a geriatric population if we begin later onset, like Jim. I treated a nun who, uh, at 70 years of age, they asked me to come and see her. She had retired or was not being active anymore for whatever reason, and she had always taken sacramental wine. But when she finished doing her duties, she couldn't sleep at night, so they told her to drink a glass of wine. Within six months, she's drinking all the wine she can get her hands on. Because of the situation, she didn't drink wine, didn't do alcohol, didn't do those things and drugs until she reached that point. And she exploded like Jim or like the kids. The way these kids uh, present is they lose, they do not lose control of the amount consumed. They may not drink that often. They may not drink that much, but when they do drink, they behave in a very antisocial manner. They shoot people. They steal cars. They wreck things. They tear up stores. These people almost always end up in the prisons or they end up in jail. At one time in our homeless shelter, we did a survey of those men who were in there because most of those people in that type 2 end up with a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. We ran a survey on our guys in there. At that time, we had about 250, and 90% of them carried a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, not by our testing, but by previous diagnoses. By the time we ran the survey on them, all of them, we found, were drinking before they were 10. They were in jail before they were 15 or younger, and and 90% of them had been in prison. But when they got into our program, developed a full recovery, excuse me, 12-step process, they were just adolescent alcoholics and drug addicts that had finally gone into a a spiritual recovery. There are very few antisocial personalities in AA and and in sexual compulsivity. I know there's been a lot of research trying to show that in SA especially, there's a lot of uh, antisocial behavioral disorders. Um, I think that's because the people doing the research don't know what the hell they're looking for. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm absolutely convinced of that because they said it about alcoholism and drug addiction for years and years and years. They just didn't know enough about how the onset of these diseases are and how they progress and what the raping that occurs in that to us by us that that occurs. So it's really important to understand there are two forms of alcoholism, the adolescent and the adult form. Uh, those men, it was, it was fascinating. And when I'm sitting in the prison working with these men, I can look out there and, you know, I'm looking into the faces of at least at least 50% of those men. I think my last count was 46 or 52 or something that are less than 30 years of age and been drinking since they were 10. And most of them have major sexual compulsivity problems. Now, the question is, is this because they didn't do their initial sexual inventory and they didn't look at this in a, in a concerted way? Or is it because it's a different disease or a similar disease presenting in a different fashion? Uh, I'm not sure anybody's smart enough to make that call. And I don't know that it matters if we put everybody in. Somebody said, how do you tell if somebody's an alcoholic or not? I don't know. Winston Churchill drank two quarts of whiskey a night for 50 years. Is he an alcoholic? That when some of us who are supposed to, you know, we love to play with our minds as addiction specialists, and we'll get together and debate that. Now I just get tickled because there's no answer. There is no answer. We can each come up with an opinion, but there is no answer. So when we look at this, somebody said, well, if you don't know if they're an alcoholic or not, what do you do? I treat them as an alcoholic. <laughs> Nobody loses that way. Nobody loses. Well, what if you made a mistake? <laughs> well, sue me. You know, for God's sake. 
Some people have tried. I promise you that. <laughs> they just, it just didn't seem to make as much difference to them that they were doing better than they've ever done. They just, anyway. So, 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 Trina, whatever they are. And in, actually, in the type 2, there is a different chemical problem within the brain. We're going to look at the total chemical problem, and you'll see what this means. In the adolescent alcoholic, they have a real major screw-up in their reuptake system of serotonin. So they basically are functioning at all times as a serotonin-depleted individual. Uh, there are other problems that exist that have yet to be ferreted out, but that's a big deal. And you say, well, the SSRI drugs ought to work. Well, they ought to, they just don't. Not to that extent. But there are a couple of drugs, or one drug that does. It's a drug we've used for years in uh, treating nausea in emergency rooms called Ondansetron. And in a type 2 or highly heritable adolescent uh, alcoholic and drug addict, uh, this has some effect. But interestingly enough, you don't see this hardly in any of the addiction literature except that it's published about uh, Cloninger, uh, who is an absolute genius in this field, uh, highly creditable. But nobody seems to pay much attention to Ondansetron, and there are some really good results that have occurred from that. If you ask me how it works, I don't know. I know how it works. I just don't know why it works in uh, adolescent alcoholism. And I don't think anybody else does either. But the main take-home message is there are different forms of alcoholism. These are concrete. There are varying degrees in between that. You know, addiction is basically the seeking of pleasure, the avoidance of pain with complete disregard for the consequences. That's the current short version of addiction. There's no more this idea of a life-threatening withdrawal. And the very simple state is seeking a pleasure, the avoidance of pain with complete disregard for the, for the consequences. Seeking a pleasure is positive affirmation uh, and trying to avoid the pain is negative uh, uh, payoff or whatever it may be. Uh, but there's no question. Very simple di- diagnosis of addiction and in sexual compulsivity, that pretty much describes us when you're there, doesn't it? Does with alcohol and drugs. Now listen to your stories, and it's the same deal. Same deal. Or at least it appears to be so to me. Uh, this is the neuropharmacology simplistically. This is a very schematic drawing. I teach the medical students with this. Uh, I told you I'm not a neuroscientist, but if you understand this major mechanism, it will certainly help you understand the other things that we're going to talk about in not totally superficial detail, but a lot more superficial than the neuroscientists do. What you have is the afferent neuron. That's the one on the bottom. Afferent meaning it's coming into the brain. This is the business end. There are billions and billions of these. They look like a cobweb. But the bottom line business end of this is the afferent neuron coming into the brain, the the, uh, efferent neuron going out of the brain. The impulse is not a a solid core nerve transmission. It goes through to an extracellular space or extracerebral fluid space, uh, which is the synaptic cleft between those two uh, sticks. Uh, you'll notice tyrosine on the left, that is a, uh, an amino acid. And when it's broken down by an enzyme, it forms little vesicles of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter. That is the chemical boat that's going to carry the impulse. It is basically the stimulant neurotransmitter in the sense that it does give us the sense of payoff to pleasure and things of that nature. There are multiple other neurotransmitters which we'll look at, but this is the one we really want to know in all of its extensiveness if we can because it's the payoff neurotransmitter with peripheral support systems that go on, but this is the big deal. So that forms little vesicles of dopamine, and they're there circled, and they're ready to go. In comes the impulse, normal impulse. The dopamine, as you see, goes out into that 
little fluid space goes to those little hair follicles which are called receptor sites. Then it turns around and comes back over to those little black blocks and they are called reuptake sites. And the dopamine is reabsorbed, put back into a vesicle and is ready to go again. This system will work in perpetuity if it's not interrupted by death, disease, age, or drugs. So obviously there's a time when it doesn't work because if nothing else happens, we finally get old and die. But the bottom line is in drugs, this is what, and in alcohol, and we feel in all compulsive behaviors, this is the deal. Now we're looking at cocaine. What happens with cocaine is we put cocaine into that system, in goes the dopamine, goes to the receptor site, turns around and comes back to the reuptake blockade site, and cocaine has blocked it. Just like Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil will do the same thing to serotonin. It blocks its reuptake. And when it blocks its reuptake, the dopamine goes sky high. And when it goes sky high, it's a stimulus, so we feel good. You know, we're making damn good time. We don't know where we're going, but we're really ahead of schedule, you know. Well, what happens then is the brain goes through what we call resetting. You know it as tolerance. In addiction medicine, we call it the brain resetting itself. And simplistically, it goes through a various number of things. First of all, the receptor sites are decreased by anywhere between 30 and 50%. This is within milliseconds. The efferent neuron swells to a certain extent and there's not as easy a transduction of the impulse. Then there's a little side chain there called 3-methoxytyramine that detoxifies the dopamine. So the end result of that dopamine surge is a dopamine recession. So, I feel great, I'm making damn good time. The brain resets up. Hey, I don't feel so good. Another, hey, I feel great, making damn good time. No, I don't feel so good. Another, hey, I feel great, making damn good. That's addiction. Seeking pleasure, avoidance of pain, complete disregard for the consequences. Based on a chemical resetting of the brain, the end result is dopamine surge and dopamine depletion. In sexual addiction, most of the time the comparison is seen on PET scans is the surge of dopamine and then its recession. And the brain gets captured because it wants another hit. It's not the surge of dopamine. That's the payoff. But it's getting away from, at the end, from this depletion where there is Irritable, restless, discontented, depression, anxieties, all the stuff that we don't feel good about. So we're looking to get back on the train. And we repeat whatever it is that gives us the best bang for our buck. People say, why do some people pick alcohol? Why do some people pick drugs? Why do some people pick sex? Gambling? I'm telling you right now, we're sorting that out. Yes.
Let me use your mic to elaborate <laughs> further on that. Repeat the question. The question is, it, it would make if this is if this is the case, and you're and we're assuming it is because that's what it is. It would make people want to take medication that would try to deal with this problem. And the answer is there are five dopamine receptors. The D2 receptor is the addiction receptor. Uh, the D1 through D5, other than D2, have nothing to do with addiction. Now, it has to do with Parkinsonism, and it has to do with some major mental illnesses like schizophrenia, for sure. And all the medications that we've used in the past, like for Parkinsonism or dopamine deficiency, uh, just don't work for addiction. The same thing is true of mental illness. We don't have a drug that successfully deals with increasing dopamine other than, other than Thorazine, Stelazine, or Haldol, and they don't act on the addiction receptor. All the Parkinsonian drugs that increase dopamine, they don't act on the addiction receptor. So you're, you're, and that's where the silver bullet is trying to be developed, is some way that we can deal with trying to increase dopamine. It doesn't exist today in addiction. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. And, and again, I don't think they'll find it because there are, there are diff, many different genes and many different chromosomes that are involved in that. So I'm giving you the major take-home message in this. this. There are so many minor players in this that we'll look at to some extent, but this is the major player in all compulsivities. Is to, and and your, the conclusion would be, well, are we all deficient in dopamine? With alcoholism and drugs, the answer is yes. It's either a down-regulated system, which means it's not functioning as well, or it's an actual depletion of dopamine, and that's why we drink and drug and have sex, because it increases the dopamine. Now, that's not the whole story, as I told you, on the endocannabinoids, which don't play a place as we see it today in alcohol and drugs. Plays a, is almost the take-home message in, in eating. And, I'm, and as I said, I'm absolutely certain it's going to be the take-home message in sexual compulsivity, both a dopamine problem and an endocannabinoid problem. Now, the last part, I'm guessing that. The first part, I'm absolutely certain of. You mean dopamine? Huh? I'm sorry. Okay. Does that answer your question adequately? It does. All right. Yeah. No, that's all right. That's all right. It, 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 I'll keep it so simple that it looks like this is the only answer. Let me promise you it's more complicated than I'm giving it. Okay? But this much is all true. Uh, all right. So we've looked at the, at the fundamental groundwork of what we do on brain chemistry. Now, this is the big boy, big boy, big girl take-home uh, deal. What we... I've got a pointer, but it doesn't work. Uh, let me see. Take that back one more. I don't skip the slide, I'm sure. Yeah, that's the one I want. This is the big boy, big girl version of what we just looked at. Here is the tyrosine coming over to vesicles of dopamine, which come out into the synaptic cleft and go to the receptor sites. You will notice that here, cocaine is sitting on the reuptake site. 
Here is the brain's own internal opiate mechanism. This is called the opioid receptor. This would be the, uh, uh, the dopamine receptor, which are all the stimulant medications. This is all the opiate medications. Sitting on a place which has to do with the GABAergic or Valium receptor systems, which sits on the GABA, uh, which sits on the tyrosine of the cocaine systems and the meth systems. All of these systems are intricately related. As the young lady pointed out, these produce a homeostatic state. The brain has every one of its own systems, as I alluded to earlier, and we stay in homeostasis unless we're born deficient in one of them, or more than one of them, or unless something wears out one of those systems. And in compulsivity states, right now, the working theory, not the working fact is on alcohol and drugs, and sexual compulsivity, there is a, with alcohol and drugs, there's an absolute certainty there's a dopamine deficiency or down-regulated system. It's being looked at in sexual compulsivity, but it's going to be the same thing. What do we need to not be irritable, restless, and discontented? And my take-home message is the treatment for alcoholism and drug addiction is not valid. <laughs> you see why that would be true? In the 70s, we used to do that. We gave everybody Valium. They quit drinking. They just got addicted to the Valium. Then they went back to the drinking until they were addicted to Valium and drinking both. Because alcohol and, alcohol and Valium work through the gabinergic system. Alcohol is water-soluble. It soon go anywhere. But its main system of working is down in the GABA system. That's why we give Valium to somebody and we take them off alcohol so we can hook that system on Valium and then detox the Valium or detox the Ativan, or detox the Phenobar, because it's in that system. So the brain has its own internal regulatory mechanism for pain, pleasure, reward, the whole deal. Uh, the reason for showing you this is this goes through, you see the dopamine coming through the synaptic cleft, going into the receptor sites, and that gets real complicated. These are the second messengers, that's the first messenger. But I brought it on into the nucleus of the cell. You can't see this over here, but this is called the expressor, express gene. This is the gene that determines everything. We now know, and the, the neuroscientists, and, and this will, <laughs> the neuroscientists today can take a virus and put a gene on that virus, run it into a mouse's brain, with mice are alcohol avoidant unless you breed a special strain, and they can run that gene in on that virus, knock off a gene, put a gene on there, and build an alcoholic mouse. Then they can turn right around and reverse it. They can determine the whole genome of that mouse. Five years ago, we... They developed the human genome, approximately 30,000 genes. We know this can be done on humans. Nobody's volunteered for it because about 25% of the mice die, so nobody's ready to try it. <laughs> but I can promise you that within, many of us are old enough, we won't see it. But many of you are young enough, you will see it. There will be a day when a child will be born, they can do the genome study and tell you that child has a high disposition, high risk for alcoholism and drugs. Then they will tell you they can change the gene structure. And they can. It makes cloning look like arithmetic to calculus. It is true Frankensteinian research. 
Now, the reason for giving you this, though, is it validates exactly what we've been saying with with absolute research drama, that this is a disease, at least the risk to the disease, is genetic. You can't make an alcoholic. You can't make an alcoholic. They are born. There are drug addicts that get addicted to drugs that don't have this disease. I can promise you that. And I don't know enough about sexual compulsivity, and I'm not sure anybody else does either, whether someone's acting out or whether they have the disease. But as I said earlier, we'll treat them all the same way. But this tells us, again, what the major gene structure that we're looking in compulsivity disorders. The neurotransmitter systems, there's a single amino acid. That's glutamate and GABA. Five years ago, I would have told you that uh, our research said glutamate didn't play a part. Today, it may be the biggest part that's getting played along with other systems. But glutamate and GABA work as a point-counterpoint neurotransmitter system. They're 90% of the neurotransmitter systems. GABA is the receptor site for alcohol and benzo, GABA-A. This is the sedative hypnotic withdrawal syndrome. Cocaine, opiates, marijuana, nicotine, none of those have life-threatening withdrawals. 85% of the people who come off of alcohol or who come off of, reset, of, uh, of sedative drugs, such as Valium or benzodiazepines, 85% will not need medical detox. 15% will go into DTs, and 15% of them will die. Even if we get there in time, sometimes it doesn't work. So anybody going to check into the Holiday Inn to overcome their, to get off of their alcohol, that's not a good idea. Now in our men's homeless shelter, men and women's homeless shelter, uh, we have a social detox. We do not use medication. But we're set with a red phone literally that connects us to EMS and the University Hospital, which is five minutes away. And we have complete priority. If that phone rings, they have an EMS unit there and they got our person in the hospital within 10 to 15 minutes max. We've had some seizures, no deaths. But we have a person sitting on every detox bed. And there are people with at least two years of sobriety who have gone through that program. They know, they know DTs. They can smell it. When I'm talking in medical communities or talking in the medical schools, I teach them how to use medication, measure blood pressures, measure pulses. That's about 10 or 15 minutes late, but it's the best we can do. But if you've really seen it, you can smell it. If you've been through it, you damn well can smell it. And we've been there since 1989, and that's incredible because the system does work. And when they first talked to me about doing social detox, man, it made my skin crawl. Because I just, I knew this, but I didn't realize how we could work this out with God's aid. These are the receptor sites that we see for glutamate and GABA. The NMDA receptor site is the biggie. The others we know something about, not as much. There is a drug now called Camprel. It's being used for alcohol compulsivity, and its whole purpose is to reequilibrate more rapidly the relation between glutamate and GABA, which gets eat up by alcohol and drugs. We don't know if this is going to play a part in some of the other compulsivities. It doesn't, doesn't appear to be that big a part with non-chemical compulsivities. But with chemical compulsivities, it is a major player. Whether the actual erosion of these systems will occur from mind over matter that we see in the, in the uh, New Thought movement, 
of whether you agree with it or not, that the idea of mind over matter, this may continue to be projected into the idea of can the mind really overcome the matter and make destructive uh, evidences within chemical systems. That has yet to be proved. Uh, I just can't give you anything more on that. I don't know why it couldn't be true because everything else is, you know, conversion hysteria is a person being unable to really know whether they've had a stroke or not. Because they've converted. I remember my first patient I ever saw in 1970 that had conversion reaction that I knew was his daddy had had a stroke uh, about a month before. This was a 19, uh, this was a 39 year old 18 wheel truck driver. He came into the emergency room. They called me and said so and so's had a stroke. And I thought, boy, that's a coincidence. I go in and he's you know he's stroked. And I push a pin in his arm. He doesn't bleed. He doesn't move. I bring in a neurologist who, within about 10, 15 minutes, that was before MRIs and CAT scans and those things, but he came out and he said, this guy hasn't had a stroke. This is a conversion reaction. And I went in and I told him, I said, what the deal was. He said, you mean I haven't had a stroke? I said, no, and he started moving his arm. Then I stuck him with a pen and he bled and he hollered. You look at me and say, how can you, you know, what can you? What's the explanation? Hell, I don't know what the explanation is, except it's not going to matter. And if that's the case, we may see these systems really screwed up by mind over matter. The mind does pretty much direct direct the body, so we can see what would happen. The neuropeptides are the narcotics. The brain's own endogenous narcotics. 8% of neuropeptide, beta-endorphin. Huge release of beta-endorphin at the time of orgasm. The research is showing us that just the pure thought of an orgasm will increase beta-endorphin, as shown on the PET scan. Uh, Early research on this, but we've known for some time that at the time of ejaculation, there is a huge outflow of beta-endorphin as there is dopamine. This is not consistently true with alcohol and drugs to that same degree as best our research can tell us today. And I think it's telling us a good story in alcohol and drugs. It's a catch-up story in sexual compulsivity. The enkephalins are another form of the brain's own opiates. Their receptor sites are the mu receptor sites. Leucine and methionine are lesser players. They are still part of the neuropeptides. They use the other neuro or other receptors. The mu receptor site is the pain receptor. Another drug that has a huge affinity for the mu receptor site is uh, marijuana and all of the brain's endogenous opiates and marijuana through the mu receptor site with the brain's own endogenous opiates specifically will increase dopamine through the mu receptor site but in, will end up increasing dopamine so if you're pouring out tons of beta endorphin through the mu receptor site your brain's pouring out tons of dopamine and that's the payoff that's the feel good deal this is where I could take methamphetamine and lay down and take a nap. Because in actual fact, what it was doing was bringing my dopamine back to a point of being normal. At least normal. <clears throat> See the difference? I'm playing on a level playing field. Uh, the dynorphin and orphanin, they don't, they're not a player, but the main re- the increase in dopamine, every, every neural, neurotransmitter increases dopamine. This one does it through mu, except for the valium, and we'll talk more about that. The aminergics, 8% are dopamine, 
Alcohol increases dopamine by directly stimulating it in an area we're going to look at. Cocaine does it by blocking the reuptake. Pot does it by its own mechanism of increasing dopamine directly and also through the mu receptor site. All the narcotics do it through the mu receptor site. That's recording. That's how sound. So I'm not getting anybody. Thank you. The devil's doing this. You know that. <laughs> Lee's a wonderful man, but he's a tool of the devil. I've decided. <laughs> He's just like he's just like this damn mouse, huh? Now he's going to get to work on his resentments. You see that? And I'm feeling really bad because I upset him. Do I look like I feel bad? I really do feel bad. You know, I really do feel bad. Not real bad, just a little bit bad. You know. Well, maybe a lot bad. Kind of think of it. Anyway, so we look at the aminergics. Eight percent are dopamine. Uh, are the dopamine receptors, and we've looked at nic- uh, narcotics. Nicotine does it uh, by coming through the acetylcholine radical down here, the acetylcholine neurotransmitter site, and coming in through the uh, nicotine receptor sites. We know today that if a child is carrying his or her own cigarettes at age 13 or less, carrying their own cigarettes, that means they're not smoking in a crowd, they're smoking by themselves. That if a child is carrying his or her own cigarettes at age 13, the chances of their developing an alcohol drug problem or a compulsivity problem, that study is not complete yet, but the alcohol and drugs is. The chances of that child becoming, uh, developing an alcohol drug problem is 100%. And the reason is because nicotine has increased the dopamine and that's why it's an entry drug. The child has found that it brings relief. I've treated a seven-year-old alcoholic. I've treated a child whose mother and daddy would leave the stuff on the table at night on a Saturday night deal for Sunday morning. And the child would go down and drink, uh, just drink some of the stuff and finally got to the point that they just go to the liquor cabinet. This child didn't have shame or guilt. This child's going for relief. He's found that when he drinks, he feels better. So what's going on? Obviously, the chemistry is what's going on. We, when we did a study on 4,000 doctors, that relapsed, we found that 90% of them were smokers. Only 10% were not smokers. I make a statement many times in 12-step present... No, wrong. In, in medical presentations, not 12-step. I don't go there nor from the podium. But I make the statement, at least the AA podium, I make a statement that if anybody's still smoking who's in a 12-step program, they're still really in danger. Because they're screwing around with their brain chemistry. They are still screwing around with their brain chemistry. Five years ago, we had uh, Richard Hurt from, uh, from Mayo, who is the guru in nicotine uh, diseases. He was born and raised in Murray, Kentucky, uh, and now is the guru at Mayo's and testified in all of the stuff against the tobacco companies. And the tobacco companies by the 50s recognized what they could do to deliver dopamine to the brain. And they geared the whole thing on how to do it. Alkalinized the, the tobacco, put filters on that would filter out everything, but actually encourage the uptake of dopamine. These people have been doing exactly what they knew to capture our brain since the 50s. Some of the best neuro, some of the best neuroscientists at that time were working for the tobacco companies. 
Now, people always ask me, well, you think we should quit smoking when we quit drinking? And we, there are a lot of caveats that go to that about whether we do or whether we don't quit at the same time. And they need to be listened to. The big book addresses this, and I've always kind of laughed at Bill because he tried to make a point, but he just couldn't get away from uh, the wife chewing on the guy for smoking. God, I, Bill, why would you write it that way, for God's sakes? But he finally gets around saying, you know, it really wasn't her fault. But the deal is that smoking was is the deal. And it needs to be looked at with a sponsor, with whatever system needs to be there to decide if there's a crash course in getting off of everything at the same time or should there be a taper course and how that should be done in conjunction with a good, strong uh, 12-step program. And I'm not telling you to stop. If you walk out here and say, Burns Brady said stop at the same time, that's not what I said. What I said was if you're still smoking in a 12-step program, you're still screwing around with some of the same brain chemistry that our disease is founded by as far as brain chemistry is concerned. Uh, Acetylcholine, uh, serotonin, uh, the SSRI drugs, uh, those are the main three receptor sites. You see the receptors on dopamine, D1, 2, and 5, and we talked about D2 and D1 and D5. Uh, the serotonin, those are the main three receptor sites. There are 40 receptor sites as we know them today. Prozac hits them all. Some of the other uh, drugs have tried to be selective and hitting, hitting very selected receptor sites. That's why they're inconsistent in all different people. Certainly with the SSRI drugs, they have a withdrawal problem. There is no question. Every one of the SSRIs, with the exception of Prozac, will have a withdrawal sequence. Uh, depersonalization, a little bit uh, quivering with the muscles, inability to know exactly where my foot is at times. Just a weird thing. It's not going to cause relapse. It's not like that. But all of them will cause that. Effexor is not an SSRI drug. It does its effect within the serotonin, but also within the noradrenaline, another neurotransmitter. And it has a real hard detox. Uh, nobody's going to relapse to it. It's not that kind of deal. But it really has a hard, has a hard withdrawal. Prozac is the only one that doesn't, and that's because its half-life of its metabolites are so long that you just really taper yourself from that. The research also tells us clearly that, uh, that, if we, uh, that when we're using Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil and those, drug, and those drugs on alcohol-seeking mice, it does not decrease their craving. It does not decrease their alcohol-seeking. They're not depressed and they're happy little mice, but it doesn't decrease. <laughs> it doesn't decrease their craving. They're just they're just really very very pleasant drunks. <laughs> they're just not depressed about much of anything. I'm being facetious, but you see, because most everybody comes up with, well, why don't we use SSRI drugs? Because we are deficient in serotonin in many of these instances, and we know that cocaine works on serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline in different ways. Uh, but the bottom line is it does not decrease our craving. Now, we can say it may decrease our depression, uh, and there's a very schematic way, as I showed you a while ago, in coming off of drugs and dealing with depression and looking at the family history to make an educated call about who does and who doesn't need medication at that time. And certainly in ADD or ADHD, I didn't mention this, but I'm sure someone thought of it, virtually all the drugs we use in ADD and ADHD are really risky drugs. Uh, with the exception of Stratera, which doesn't work that well many times, but when it does, be grateful for it because it doesn't have a, an addicting uh, uh, property. And we can also use some of the other anti-convulsants, occasionally some of the anti uh, 
uh, atypical antipsychotic drugs if we have to and it's that severe and I've seen it that severe before even after a good 12 step program some medication was indicated certainly in children who have a well diagnosed ADD or ADHD problem not to treat them is criminal even if they're in a family where that there's a strong risk for alcoholism and drugs you try various other methods to deal with the so-called disinhibition syndrome but in all in all fairness and in all medical certainty they need to be treated uh, will they have an increased risk for problems as they grow older yes they will if they're from an alcoholic family is it any more than just the risk of being an alcoholic family we don't know that we do not know that yet uh, tremendous research most of it is helped uh, is kept in the archives of, uh, at austin p college uh, they've got about 150 studies that have come out about giving ADD and ADHD patients, children patients, and what is their increased propensity to addiction later on. But I think it's really, really, really risky to try to treat an ADD adult uh, with any of the stimulant medications, uh, you know, any of the dexedrine preparations or Ritalin or things like that. It's really risky, really risky. I've done it, but with a lot of prayer, fear, trepidation, and monitoring or that that person was monitored on a daily basis and they reached that point to make that decision that we would give them that medication after a significant period of time of working in the 12-step. I'm not talking about five years of working within the 12-step system and really embracing it, and they were just really messed up. And we, we did do that. No, nothing else worked. But that's a whole whole presentation within itself, but it gives you some idea of some of the things we're talking about. Noradrenaline comes out of the locus ceruleus. Uh, noradrenaline, if that's not intact, uh, there will be no sedative hypnotic withdrawal. This produces all the com- this produces all the medical compilation- uh, complications of the stimulant drugs. Uh, nobody dies coming off of cocaine. Everybody dies while they're using it. And the number one cause of their death is usually related to noradrenaline and its vasoconstrictive properties with... Uh, the, the heart uh, increased heart attacks, increased angina, increased strokes, all that's due to vasoconstriction of all the blood vessels that occur from the noradrenaline. Does that occur in sexual compulsivity? Again, we're talking about mind over matter and the new thought type of stuff, and, and much research remains to be done on that. Uh, the neurosteroids, I put that in. Uh, uh, the noradrenaline and SSR also occur from Effexor, Cymbalta, and the n- newest one, which starts with a P that I can't think of, which works with, with doing this. Uh, the neurosteroids uh, are, is another whole family of, uh, of neurotransmitters, and I put it in because there's not a lot known about them, but it looks like it may have something to do with why women drink differently from men. Uh, and we know a great deal of that has to do with the change in the uh, alcohol dehydrogenase or the relative absence of that in women in their stomach as opposed to men alcoholics. So their first three or four passes of alcohol is pure high-octane alcohol. The increased incidence of breast cancer in women alcoholics is huge. Uh, it's, just, it's just huge. The increased incidence of breast cancer due to the toxic effect of uh, early, early and uh, inhibited uh, detoxification at the stomach lining. Uh, this neurosteroid appears to be working through the GABA and NMD system, but I put it in to show you where the research is today and where we're going. This is the reward center. If I cut my brain right in the middle and right here, I'm looking down on the top of my brain and I'm looking at the left side of the brain. That is called a hemisagittal section. And I'm looking right in the reward center of the brain. 
You will notice at the ventrotegmental area at the bottom, all drugs of reward come into this area, the dopamine into this area. With the sexual compulsivity, we're going to see this reward light up, and we see it light up at the time of sexual uh, uh, visualization sexually or actual act of sexual compulsivity. The uh, dopamine system through the mesocortical limbic system, the medial forebrain bundle, goes to an area called the nucleus accumbens. That's a vestigial remnant in the adult, I mean in the human. Uh, this was done in mice predominantly, uh, and in the human it's called the extended amygdala system. Because what we have is that at the bottom we see the amygdala, then we see the hippocampus, and then we see the nucleus accumbens. You notice it's stippled with the hippocampus because it's just slightly inferior and a little lateral. Same thing with the amygdala. Uh, in the hippocampus, uh, this is the area of the brain that has to do with new facts, learning new information, and its retention. The amygdala has to do with the primary area of emotional stability or instability. In the hippocampus was first discovered CB1 and CB2, which is cannabis 1 and cannabis 2. Those are the receptor sites for marijuana. Uh, the brain's own marijuana was discovered at this time. There are three uh, chemical compounds that act identically to marijuana. They are not molecularly similar, but they act identically with affinity for the CB, CB1, and uh, CB2 receptors. It's called anandamide. is the main one that, that the scientists are picking up today. We throw marijuana into this system. We can see how it screws up that entire system. And this is the area for, as I say, new information, and it's assimilation and it's retention. That's why marijuana has been called the stupid drug. It interrupts this whole area. It's also where we find the major deficiencies in the decreased endocannabinoid system, the brain's own marijuana. This is the area I talked to you about earlier, talked with you about earlier. Uh, just, just keep paying attention to the literature because that's where the money is going to be. Certainly in non-chemical compulsivities, that's where it, the payoff's going to be, is in the inability for satiety. The inability for satiety. There is no question that that's where it's going to be. Uh, and, and I wouldn't have made this statement a year ago with that degree of certainty, but what we know with the eating disorders, it makes it a degree of certainty today that I have no doubt about as far as what you're interested in, in regard to the sexual compulsivity thinking and acting, is the inability for satiety. Um, I put these in to show you the dopamine receptors, serotonin receptor, the gamma-immunopatric acid receptors. I just wanted to show you how complicated and complex this can be so that while I've tried to resolve it to its simplest common denominator, because that's basically as far as I can take it. I mean, I understand all these things, but for me to try to keep it all in my mind is impossible for me to do. I'm just grateful I understand when it talks about it. But if anybody wants to get my overheads and slides Scott's been after me for a month to get them to him, but if everything goes true and I don't die, you'll get them within three or four years. But I promise you, you'll get them. (laughs) 
This is the glutamate and the opioid peptides. Again, all of the reactions of these neurotransmitters that have to do with their interaction that you can see how they would play a part in compulsivity. If you know the fundamental bottom line is, at least for alcohol and drug addiction, we are sure there's a relative deficiency in dopamine and serotonin. Remember when Wilson talks about the real alcoholic? He says they are bodily and mentally different. A bodily difference, you're looking at it. And we drink for the effect, and you're looking at it. And our thinking is all about, through the peculiar mental twist, getting back to relief. I say it over and over and over. I can't stress it enough. And in Jim's story, everything is about dealing with the character defects. I can't say it enough. Dealing with the character defects so I don't have to figure out a way to put scotch in milk. You think that was his big stupid move? Oh, no. His stupid move started a long time before that. His disease move started a long time before that. He didn't maintain his spiritual growth. That's what he says, isn't it? And that's what he didn't do. And it tells us that. Chromosomal hotspots 1, 2, 7, 11 show us risk for compulsivity disorders as we're looking, and, and this is subject to change. The 1990s was called the decade of the brain. Between the 1990 and 2000, between 1990 and 2000, with better paradigms, better methodologies, predominantly the PET scan in an effective way, we outlined all the brain chemistry that I've talked to you about. Since 2000, uh, the breakthrough has been predominantly in other diseases other than alcohol and drugs and looking at the chromosomal gene component. And right now we know for alcohol and drugs we're looking at 1, 2, 7, and 11 with the fourth uh, chromosome probably an aberrancy over years in evolution as trying to build our own protection against these changes. Still multiple chromosomes affecting the neuropharmacology, how they affect compulsivity disorders. It remains to be seen at least as of six months ago. And that's 9, 15, and 16. Uh, at, at the addiction conference we will have, I'll have a fellow named Randy Adair uh, who I think is the best who is the best conveyor of the pure brain chemistry that goes on in this, presenting it at at, uh, at our addiction conference in the latter part of this of January. This is the brain on cocaine. Uh, you see, the left side is where the dopamine is the red red material. In the right side, you see it depleted. The PET scan is positron emission tomography. MRI and CAT scan have to do with the brain's architecture or its structure. The PET scan does that, but in addition gives us the chemical activity. And with the PET, and it was originally devised to track cancer, but now Nora Vocal in New York is, is, is a major player in this whole disease of addiction using the PET scan technology. And we're able to see that the left is the normal brain and the right is the brain on cocaine, and you see the red stuff is depleted. That's dopamine. This scan has been repeated frequently in the brain of the sex addict, showing the light-up and failure-to-light-up areas that go on in the brain with sexual compulsivity, either through thought at looking at pornography or through the actual act itself. And the the research is pretty good on this. You just have to review it. And now, I'll tell you, trying to find research in sexual compulsivity, just scanning this is very difficult. There's just not that much written, and it's written almost perambulatingly. But if you get to the right people that are doing the right work, 
They can help you really know how to review the literature if you're so inclined to do it. The biochemistry in the, uh, and this is just for those of you who may have an alcohol and drug problem. I'm sorry. No. There you go. Thanks, Steve. I'll see if I can screw that one up again. Uh, Alcohol is metabolized to acid aldehyde to acetic acid to CO2 and water. Those are the seminal processes of metabolism. And that goes out through the lungs and out through the kidneys, obviously. Uh, Alcohol is reduced by alcohol dehydrogenase and the female effect we've talked about. Acid aldehyde uh, is where we build up huge amounts of acid aldehyde because we lack the acid aldehyde dehydrogenase 1 and 2. So there's huge amounts of acid aldehyde, and this equates into severe hangovers at the end of the drinking, or certainly after the drinking has reached a certain point. This is where anabuse works. I don't even use anabuse anymore. I think it's a waste of time. Uh, unless there's a major compulsivity problem, and I can't imagine any of us who don't have our impulse disorder. They used to always say, I had an impulse disorder. Well, hell, show me one of us that doesn't have an impulse disorder, and I'll kiss your nose, you know. Uh, I mean, that, that's, that's just the way it is. But I really look at these people and decide if they really, and I've seen a couple of people with impulse disorder so badly they needed uh, to take antibiotics. The reason it doesn't work long term is because it's trying to scare us into not drinking. Hell, we've been scared ever since we hit the delivery room floor. I mean, we have been in a, an intense environment because we are playing a court low, or at least a half a pint. We're playing low, and we're looking for that relief. So you, I've, I've never worked with anybody on antibiotics who really wasn't serious about quitting drinking that they could, or I've never seen it. Uh, where they didn't figure out how to drink around antibiotics. When I was in treatment in Atlanta, there was a guy there that, you know, he got 14 days where the antibiotics clears the system. And he was so impulsive and compulsive that he would take his fifth of whiskey, go down to the Emory emergency room, sit in the emergency room, start drinking his whiskey till he went out in shock and the whole deal. And they had to, about once every six months they had to save him. Because he couldn't turn off the bubble machine. He didn't access, simplistically stated, he didn't access the spiritual solution. Even though I didn't have all 12 steps for 10 years, I want you to know there would be days I would call my sponsor six and seven times a day. What I learned in 10 years with no nine, the last nine, without the last nine steps is I learned obedience with the first three. If he told me to go down to the corner and stir up a box of, of, of something and set something, I'd, whatever example you want to use, I'd do it. I wouldn't even say, well, that doesn't make sense. First time I said it, he said, who in the hell said it had to? Go do it. Now, I'm saying in the current day, you say, we're not going to. If you were as desperate as I was. If you had reached that point, had reached that point of incomprehensible demoralization, ego deflation at depth, and I had, with a very successful practice, a lot of cars, country club membership, and a computer, I looked like I had the world. Inside my chest was a hole so big that you couldn't fill it up. It was a huge emptiness that was all, all demanding and controlling. 
incomprehensible demoralization. When Wilson wrote the big book, he wrote it for a population that was hopeless. You read it. He wrote it for a population that was absolutely hopeless. Read the chapter, there is a solution. The first half of that chapter, the first three quarters of that chapter, if you don't read the last third, you'll be so depressed you'll go out and shoot yourself. Because the first part of that chapter basically says, this is ugly, this is awful. And then there is a solution. Boom! And interesting about the solution, he doesn't start off saying we have this great big revelation in God. If you read the first three lines, he gives us a pencil and paper and tells us how to go to work. That's what he does. And then as the result of these steps, that's what is the next paragraph. I love that. He didn't say just go over and sit in the corner and pray. He said get off your ass. You know? One of the old fellows that used to say to me, if you want to get goosed by the Holy Ghost, get off your ass. And that was exactly what I found to be true in this program. Yeah. Uh, the Native American and the Oriental have differences in their acetaldehyde dehydrogenase. That's why we see very few Orientals with alcohol and drug problems. We see a lot of Native American Indians with alcohol and drug problems, and they are different in which one of the acetaldehyde dehydrogenases that they lack. So that's a big deal. It was a long while before that was broken through. Post-acute recovery syndrome that we see with uh, anagrade memory. When I came home, I could practice medicine. That was retrograde. But I couldn't read the paper and remember it. I could not read any new material or, or, or medical material and remember it. I lost my car in an eight-place parking lot next to my office repeatedly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, so give me a break. Uh, I drove my wife's car, so I couldn't remember I drove her car. That was the problem. <laughs> I'm telling you the damn truth. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it was just incredible. I couldn't. I thought I'd burned up my brain. And this wasn't published till 79, and I was in there doing psychiatric therapy in 78. And I'd go see the doctor on, on Tuesday and Thursday, and I'd say, Homer, where will we start on, thir- on Thursday? Where do we start? Where were we on Tuesday? I don't remember. You're blocking your therapy. I'm a piece of crap. I'm blocking my therapy. And I'd go to the AA meeting. I got a problem. I got a problem. What's where am I blocking my therapy? And everybody would talk, and I'd tell them a story, and do this repeatedly. And finally, one of the old-timers said, Son, do you remember where his office is? And I said, Yeah. And they said, That's as good as it's going to get for about two years. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> so it's very important, especially in sexual compulsivity, if there's a combined alcohol or drug problem, to realize you're playing with a brain that's really like Swiss cheese for probably two years. Uh, sometimes as long as three to four. With each of these things that I put up here, simple problem solving and stress management, those are living skills. Pure and simple, those are living skills. And you really aren't going to be able, without somebody to help you, be able to get from your room to, to the parking lot. But you can practice medicine because that's what you learned before. That's kind of scary, isn't it? I would go from one room to another practicing medicine. That was fine, but I'd start crying in the hall. As long as I was in that room, I could work. But coming from one room to another was overwhelming to me sometimes. Uh, treatment is abstinence. Now, you define abstinence the way you define it in SA. I'm not going there. That's your description. That's your definition. In alcohol and drug problems, you don't drink and you don't drug. Since 19, for years, and certainly since the late 70s here in Nashville, the Sobels were the first place that tried to show us that they could teach alcoholics to drink successfully. Miserable failure. The Rand Corporation tried it. Miserable failure. Uh, since that time, there have been multiple other attempts to show, show that we could teach alcoholics to drink moderately. Uh, 
Audrey Kishline, uh, Moderation Management, wrote an uh, extensive book on how to teach us to drink moderately. She killed two people when she was drunk in a vehicular uh, manslaughter deal and went to prison. She rejected everything she'd ever written. She said an alcoholic or a person trying to drink moderately has to have a reason because they can't drink successfully, so they're just denying their alcoholism. They're just trying to find a way to drink like normal people, and it just doesn't work. You say, well, it may be too close to call. Treat them all the same. Abstinence is the treatment. There's all kinds of stuff in the current scientific literature. We can't go to pure abstinence. We've got to gain their confidence and work them through this uh, cognitive behavioral model. I'm not against cognitive behavioral, and I'll say it again. It comes after you've got enough of a brain to know what cognitive means. <laughs> you know? And if you're driven by all the other compulsivities where shame is the defining fact, it is very difficult to overcome that shame until there's a spiritual solution to recognize who's running the universe. And during that period of time, any attempt to think your way through a problem is fraught with danger. I'm not going to tell you it fails every time. I'm just going to tell you it works better in concert with the 12-step model. With the 12-step model being the predominant mechanism, the spirituality model being the predominant best method to use until we can learn to develop a support system and understand what the hell it is that's driving us. Uh, Short-term is uh, detox. Intermediate is what is the treatment center if one is needed. Long-term is the 12-step system. Getlow said the best treatment for stimulus augmentation was people loving people. There's a man that's not an alcoholic. True scientist, people loving people. <laughs> Is that not spirituality? An integral, an integral part of spirituality? Bill Wilson, somebody asked Bill Wilson, what is spirituality? He said, no, he said, what part of this program is spiritual? And he said, all of it's spiritual. And they said, define spirituality. He said, it's humility plus responsibility. The first three steps are the humility. The last nine steps are the responsibility. Components critical to recovery. Professional treatment based on a 12-step model to us. 12-step participation after treatment gives best results. Research is complete, even current research, and I haven't pulled it together. But even back as early as 1990, Al Mooney was talking about this along with North Carolina University. Spiritual foundation critical in Seminoles. Uh, abstinence model consistently is superior to other models. The emotional component, we've looked at each of these. We've looked at the depression. We've looked at the anxiety. We've looked at the personality disorders, where they are true and where they're not. The antisocial or the type 2 is what we talked about in Cloninger's deal. That is, that is a mixed, that is simply not what we found out. Narcissism is what Wilson calls self-centered because if he just said we're all narcissistic, God knows where we'd be today. But he called us self-centered which was basically his same idea. We're so in love with our need to control that that's where we stand. Uh, we've been through virtually all of that. Twelve-step, that's not facilitation. Twelve-step facilitation is where somebody teaches somebody else. When the project match was done, they used motivational enhancement therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral model, and twelve-step facilitation. It was a flawed study from the beginning. Because AA is not 12-step facilitation. Uh, they only use the first five steps and then you use one individual teaching another individual the first five steps of the textbook without the personalities and the support systems of meetings and those other things. And that's what we've got. Meetings. Home group. Sponsor. Big book. 
12 steps. You go through each of those and you understand why meetings are critical. You understand why sponsors are critical. Why a home group is, uh, is critical. And then, of course, why, uh, why the big book and the steps are critical. The triangle of spiritual balance is sponsor, meetings, and the big book. That is balanced completely and, sh- and safely and securely on a base of honesty in today. If I'm screwed up, let me go see, have I quit talking with my sponsor as much? Have I cut down on my meetings? Do I not pay attention when I get there? Am I really using the big book as a design for living? And am I being completely honest? And am I staying in the day? And if my day's screwed up, one of those is screwed up. You can take it to the bank. You have been extremely courteous and paid close attention. Most of you came back. The new people who came in stayed. God, you've made my day a whole hell of a lot better. You don't know it. I love you very much. Thank you. you all for coming. Um, uh, we're about out of tape time, but if anybody's interested, we can uh, take some questions and answers. I think we need to be out of here at 12.15. And those of you have, who have been interested, please uh, join us uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock for the Doctor's Opinions panel. Dr. Brady and three other uh, uh, doctors uh, involved in treatment of addiction and, and sexual addiction in particular uh, will be on that panel. It will be moderated questions uh, followed by an Ask It Basket format for your questions. Um, uh, the, that is also an open meeting. Um, uh, how would we like to do questions? Would those who like to do questions uh, want to have a seat and we'll have a show of hands? And um, uh, you can come up to the microphone or have a line right here. How do we, actually, why don't we do that? The, yeah, just, let, just have a line right here and then uh, speak your question in the microphone and then Dr. Brady can answer the question. Yes, sir. Um, I'm Phil. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, my, hey, everybody. Uh, my question is uh, the drug Lamictal. Uh, the question is Lamictal. Lamictal is uh, basically an, an atypical antipsychotic, uh, and um, I'm, I'm sure there's three of you that are convulsive, but I think it, I'm not sure. That's a safe drug as far as any relapse potential from, from, with the exception of the psychological idea of better living through chemistry, and if you've got a good, strong program, that's not going to happen in addition to you. But Lamictal is, is a safe drug in regard to compulsivity disorders. It has, like any medicine that's a poison, we have to check your liver and do things like that. But it's a very safe drug and is very effective, especially in mood disorders. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.